0: Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast includes discussions about sex and relationships. Welcome to episode three of this three-part series on monogamy and non-monogamy. For the last two episodes in this series, I've been mostly focused on the monogamy side of the equation, trying to figure out if humans are meant to be monogamous or not, and why monogamy is so dominant in Canada and the U.S. But consensual non-monogamy is also a crucial piece of the relationship-style puzzle. In this episode, I'll explain some of the many varieties of consensual non-monogamy, but broadly you can define consensual non-monogamy as including any type of relationship or interaction where people are having sexual, romantic, or intimate relationships with more than one person. So I'm a non-monogamy researcher, I practice consensual non-monogamy, and I'm currently on the American Psychological Association Division 44 Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy. Phew, that's a mouthful. My point is, I spend a lot of time thinking about non-monogamy but I know the choice to engage in consensual non-monogamy can be hard for people to wrap their brains around. So to help dig into the nuances, I'll be joined by dedicated monogamist, Matt Tunnicliffe, who will grill me with his questions in a segment we are calling Questions from a Somewhat Confused Monogamist. That's coming up on Do We Know Things? (music) To begin, I'll explain why I prefer the term consensual non-monogamy, or even just non-monogamy, to the phrase ethical non-monogamy. I see both ethical and consensual floating around on the internet to describe these relationship styles. The word ethical is a judgmental term, whereas consensual is just more descriptive. Ethical also insinuates that these types of relationships are always ethical, just because people are upfront about them, but that is absolutely not the case. People can be manipulative and abusive and unethical in any type of relationship style. So those are some of the reasons why I stick with consensual over ethical. Okay, so what does consensual non-monogamy, CNM, look like, and how does it work? There are many ways to engage in CNM. Often when outsiders think of CNM, I think they envision a couple in a long-term relationship who date or have sex with people outside of the primary relationship. Since monogamy and couples are seen as the norm, CNM that centers on a couple is quite common. For example, couples who engage in threesomes, foursomes, or moresomes. Another more formal style of CNM that has a couple at the center is swinging. Swinging usually involves couples going to organized events or parties with other couples and having sex with other people. In theory, swinging is strictly about sex and is always done as a couple, But in practice, people involved in the swinging lifestyle can, of course, form long-term relationships and emotional bonds within the swinger community. Couples might also have an open relationship, which is kind of an umbrella term that can encompass different types of things. It could mean that one or both partners in the relationship have casual sex with people outside the primary relationship. Or it can mean that people can have sex and relationships with other people in very specific times and places. Maybe outside sex is allowed when one person is out of town. Maybe it's allowed in a kink context, like if one partner has a kink that the other person isn't into, that person can go outside the relationship to satisfy that need. Maybe it's allowed as long as it's kept discreet, like a don't ask, don't tell relationship. Don't ask, don't tell means that people have permission to say have sex outside of the relationship, but that it has to be kept a secret. I personally think that don't ask, don't tell is not a good way to approach CNM because it's predicated on secrecy, which undermines the whole point of having an open and consensually non-monogamous relationship. But open relationships really can look many different ways. Polyamory is a term that's becoming more commonly known. It was coined in the 90s and means many loves. Polyamory, too, can take many forms, but I would say the core of it is having more than one ongoing relationship in which love or caring is a component. Some people identify as solo poly, which means they don't have a primary or nesting partner, so someone they live with, but do have more than one long-term partners. Some people have a primary partnership and then ongoing relationships with additional people. And some people have multiple partners who form a unit like a triad or a quad relationship. Some people in polyamory reject the concept of hierarchy and see all partners as equal, and some people have primary and secondary partners. Polyamory can involve relationships that are sexual, romantic, or intimate, or some combination of the three. Something that has been personally validating to me as I've learned more about CNM is the concept of relationship anarchy. There are different interpretations of this concept, but it essentially means moving away from privileging specific types of relationships, usually the primary, romantic, sexual, and intimate relationships. We're socialized to put these types of relationships first and to devalue things like intimate friendships— I've always felt uncomfortable with the idea that a romantic relationship should be a person's number one priority. I love the idea of valuing different relationships as equally important, or at least not prioritizing one specific type of relationship. This is easier in theory than in practice, but I really like the idea of it. So that was your crash course on what CNM might look like. To dig more into details, joining me now is one of my collaborators on the podcast, my script advisor and general idea bouncer offer, Matt Tunnicliffe. Welcome.
1: Lisa Don, it's nice to be back on the podcast.
0: Nice to have you back. Last year on Do We Know Things, we did a segment called Awkward Questions from Confused Guys, where Matt asked some guy questions and I dug into the answers.
1: I learned a lot. I'm still processing from a year ago. <laughs>
0: We thought to wrap up the series on monogamy and non-monogamy, we'd try a segment called Awkward Questions from a Somewhat Confused Monogamist. Matt, are you a somewhat confused monogamist?
1: Well, Lisa Don, uh, you know, I've been loving this series, Philip, uh, over the past few weeks. But uh, as someone who's been in a monogamous relationship for the past 14 years now, hi, honey, if you're listening, uh, and who has absorbed a lot of knowledge about non-monogamy over the past few weeks, I've got some questions. Have you got some answers? Yes. All right, before we start, I want to give a little background about where I'm coming from. As I said, I've been in a heterosexual monogamous relation for 14 years, married for 11, and we have an eight-year-old son together, pretty standard. And, uh, you know, I've been listening and, uh, you know, I, I really... Uh, found it fascinating. I really believe in the science when you talk about how most animals are are non-monogamous and even species like birds and stuff that that pair bond are not necessarily, um, you know, sexually monogamous. Uh, They're just socially monogamous. Uh, And I'm reminded of that great uh, Douglas Copeland quote when he's kind of asked the children's game question, if you were an animal, what animal would you be? And he replies, well, I already am an animal. Yes. (laughs) It must be the same for humans. And, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, you can extrapolate that data and, and, you know, um it's a lot of the reason why you know 40% of marriages end in divorce and um you know most marriages in Canada last 12 to 14 years on average so you know it, it's a lot to think about over the last uh, last couple of episodes that, that you've given to us but um uh, still, I mean, as as much as I've sort of thought that the episodes in non-monogamous and consensual non-monogamous relationships might be the future, but I'm still not 100% convinced by that. I mean, I still think I have a lot of cultural baggage on top of that. I've spent the last 40 years being indoctrinated by, you know, fairy tales and romantic comedies and pop songs all telling me to look for that one true love. But it kind of worked. I <laughs> yes. found my one true love.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Um, that said, you know, I don't feel that um, people who... Um, you know, who say, "Oh, since I got married, or since I found my one true love, uh, I've only had eyes for that person," and stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, and on episode one, you said a lot of your research. Um, or should I say? Episode forty, uh, a lot of your research talked about um, how it's kind of you found it was a spectrum of, of people mm-hmm. that between people who are very monogamous and very non-monogamous, and you know, I, I I think it's there must be people that are like, "Oh, yes, I I only have eyes for sort of, the person that I love," but yeah, I, I do think that people see attractive women and men and they say, you know, I want to be with them or I want to know them or I want to, I want to fuck them or whatever. But, um, but you know, it's, it's that, it's that thing we want to see beautiful people and we want to make that connection. And the whole, I mean, I feel feel that's the whole reason, you know, we have celebrity culture is we want to see beautiful people do beautiful things on stage or in real life or whatever sort of thing. So... I'm gonna, so that's where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, I realize it's a big institution, monogamy, mm-hmm. as you talked about with with the CIL last episode. So I'm going to I'm going to ask some questions and try to get some clarification. Maybe you can win me around on uh, non-monogamy and consensual non-monogamy, which we'll now call CNM from now on. It's easier. Uh, and I want to preface it by saying some my questions may come off as naive or um, not disrespectful, but sort of just. Uh, I I, I don't know where I'm coming from, but I'm just trying to understand no disrespect to the uh, CNM community. So feel free to come at me with questions about monogamy. We'll make it a real debate. (laughs) So that's that's my piece said. Um, I want to start with a kind of broad question to start out with. And that's, that's, what are the ground rules of a CNM relationship?
0: That is an excellent question and one that is very confusing for many people or concerning for many people. And the answer is, I'll start with that. There's no one set of ground rules. It really depends on the people involved in the relationship, the style of relationship. So before I invited you on, I talked about the different categories of non-monogamy. Of course, there's also just sort of the general open relationship that doesn't have like a predefined structure. But if we're thinking about something like swingers, for example, usually that's a more codified thing where Couples go to places with other couples. So it's like this very paired activity. And then sex can happen at those places with other couples, but with your partner present or at least, if not participating, but like around and fully knowing what's happening. And in those situations, too, though, there can be rules about uh, body contact. So you can, you know, fool around with someone else, but no penetration. Or there's all sorts of rules that different couples come up with in swinging. If we're talking about more ongoing-type relationships, so you can have a polyamorous relationship, for example, that has three or four people in it. And so I think often when people are thinking about consensual non-monogamy, they're starting from the idea of a couple then branching out, which is common. But there's also relationships that start as a three-person or four-person relationship— and so maybe within that relationship, they are, it's what's called polyfidelis or fidelitis um, which means within those four people or three people or however many, um, they are uh, only having sex and romance, et cetera, with each other, um, not with people outside of that relationship. So it's still non-monogamous, but it's a closed non-monogamous relationship. When you talk more about couples who are then it, the rules can be highly varied. And often what we see is that early on in people branching out and dabbling in consensual non-monogamy, or I'm going to try to use CNM as you did since it's much easier to say, uh, but there's often a lot of rules. So it can be things like you can only go on dates when I have dates. You can not do certain activities with the other person you can or other people. Um, you can only communicate with them in, in these ways at, at these times. So I think a lot of fear goes into creating these rules that sort of create more rigid boundaries. Um, and then over time, usually, uh, once trust is built up, then people can relax those rules more, and it's more trusting. And again, though, it can be different for every consensually non-monogamous relationship. So some people can uh, have situations where they really want all their partners to know each other and like hang out together and have good relationships. And some people never want their partners to meet each other <laughs> and keep that separate. Uh, so the rules are just highly variable, depending on the couple the or the quad or triad or situation. Um, people can also be solo poly, which is someone who tends to live alone and date polyamorously, um, but not have any sort of primary partner.
1: What's the penalty obviously not in a solo uh, relationship what's the penalty for you know breaking those rules i mean in, in a in a monogamous relationship obviously either this you know the couple splits up or the the relationship go through a bad time or whatever but what's the penalty for breaking rules like that
0: again that would be something that's negotiated within the relationships themselves and And in some cases, it could be similar, like it could lead to breaking up, um, especially if there's a violation of trust that can be really challenging to navigate. But it's the same in any relationship when there's a, a violation of trust. And I think one un- or co- something that people don't understand is there still can be like cheating and lying in openly consensually non-monogamous relationships where people are are doing things like violating the rules or seeing someone secretly or you know there's all sorts of ways in which you can still have um, violations or- and like quote unquote cheating within an open relationship, which sounds strange, but. The foundation of a good consensually non-monogamous relationship is both trust and communication, and within that, consent. So there's just a lot of talking about feelings, about boundaries, about you know what happens if you violate a rule. Like all of that stuff is constantly being negotiated and discussed. So absolutely, it can. The penalty can be we're breaking up. Uh, I do think though, because. The foundation of any non-monogamous relationship should be one of trust, negotiation, and having all sorts of conversations, I suspect that there might be an ability to be able to work around that and, you know, renegotiate things in a CNM relationship, Um, maybe more so than in a a monogamous relationship because I do find that in monogamy land it's sort of like if you cheat that's it like that is the violation of all that is holy um, and Dan Savage the sex advice podcaster and columnist often says like we have this rule that you can't touch anyone else with your genitals like why is that the rule <laughs> that like is the immediate grounds for disbarring someone or like breaking up with them
1: that's, I mean, it's fascinating as, as you said also in the in episode 40 it was you know it most monogamous couples may not even have had the conversation mm-hmm. about what is monogamy and and what uh, what what's that line you know in mm-hmm. your studies on on well this is cheating and you know kissing is 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 considered cheating but uh but sex is considered something else
0: mm-hmm. things, so. mm-hmm. Yeah and there's some recommendations like Esther Perel who's a sex therapist and widely known um author and speaker about Things like monogamy, um, she often encourages people to, like, flirt with others because that can remind your partner, uh, like, if your partner being able to see that reminds them that you're desirable, and um, that's something that can be beneficial to a monogamous relationship. Um, But then some people in monogamous relationships would see that as a horrific violation (laughs) of their monogamy vows.
1: I can ask a question in a kind of flippant way, but... Uh, don't take it the wrong way, <laughs> uh, it, but it's sort of a, a bigger point, sort of thing. Um, so, in a non-monogamous or a CNM relationship, who pays the cable bill? <laughs> and don't answer that. It's just the first kind of thing that popped into my head. But I do want to talk about one of the advantages to a monogamous relationship, and that it's the ability to kind of build wealth as a couple. You know, something that you can pass along to the next generation, i.e., your kid or kids, and. You know, sometimes it feels like you're running a corporation more than a relationship, but it it does feel like you're building something together and something that I think I would miss if I wasn't monogamous. It's more of a comment than a question, but how does finance work in non-monogamous relationships?
0: I do think your comment does speak to what we talked about in episode 41 with Tasia Alexopoulos about the how monogamy is sort of baked into Canadian laws and it's argued in other places that it is baked into our societies and our cultures kind of because of capitalism right so the idea that it you do need to build something like once we started owning land um, you needed to know who your offspring were you needed to you know protect your land protect your wealth and then have someone to hand that off to and so it is sort of monogamy stemmed out of at least in part the capitalist need for hoarding wealth and property and things like that. And so I I think you're right that monogamy, it does feel like that sometimes like a corporation because it is like a marriage is kind of a business relationship. And historically it very much was that if we look back, say in England in the 16, 1700s, um, you know, it was a property exchange even, and particularly in the higher classes, it was like, how do we protect our wealth? Um, so I I don't think that it's incorrect to think about monogamous relationships that way and then wonder how does it work when you're not monogamous. And I guess it requires kind of a reframing of like what your values are or what is important. Um, and there are cases where, um, say you're in a four-person, closed, polyamorous relationship, you all live together, you do have to have negotiations about who pays the cable bill. You know, if someone owns this house, who's on the deed or what rights do people have if there is a a rift in the relationship and someone is booted out of the relationship or if the relationship entirely dissolves. Like when you are engaging in um, more of the household sharing things in a non-monogamous relationship, it gets tricky and there are no laws at all at this point (laughs) to protect us, particularly not in Canada. Uh, If you look In some jurisdictions in the U.S., um, I know I think Boston is one of them, Um, I think San Francisco is another, they're actually moving within the cities to have specific rules and regulations around consensually non-monogamous and particularly polyamorous relationships, where if there are things like shared assets, that those things can be divvied up fairly. Um, But then you have things like health insurance, for example. Um, And in most places, so if there's, you know, say three partners in a relationship and two kids, it doesn't matter whose kids those are. Like you can get those kids on your plan, but for health insurance, say, but you can't get a third partner generally.
1: Yeah. I mean, it speaks to the whole institutionalization of the Mm -hmm. whole thing. as I say, I get these pension statements you know, every six months or whatever, and it's addressed to Matt Tonicliffe and spouse. It just seems such a a twentieth century. I'm like, it's the only piece of mail I get that's addressed that way. It's right. like it's it seems like it's such a twentieth century concept that uh, that something is addressed to and spouse. But, yes. <laughs> you know. Um. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a funny thing because, you know, you know. Of people, people who stay in relationships because of it costs a lot to leave a relationship. Yeah, it yeah. Co- they they're, they feel trapped in a monogamous relationship mm-hmm. that they're not happy with because of the money thing that they want to, you know, it's it's cheaper to live two people living splitting a cable bill um, rather than living alone kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it, it obviously keeps some people. Unhappily in relationships that are, are monogamous.
0: Absolutely, it is very expensive to leave a relationship that you, where you, if you own property and you've like, or even if you just own furniture together, um, and in so many places where rents and cost of living are going up, like maybe you cannot afford to live by yourself, and so I think that monogamy can sometimes trap us in those types of relationships. And one thing I often advocate for people in monogamous relationships, and there's been other writings about this on the internet, is taking the types of negotiations and discussions that happen in non-monogamous relationships and using those in monogamous relationships. Because I do think often in monogamous relationships, a lot of things are assumed or they're institutionalized. But I think of when my partner Jeremy moved here to New Brunswick from Vancouver, he gave up a job. He gave up like a life to come live here. And it was really important to me that we have some sort of a relationship contract and so, saying like, so that we don't, both don't feel trapped um, and saying like, if we were to break up, here's how we will separate assets. Um, and because we aren't married and we have no plans to become that, um, I thought it was important to have a clear relationship agreement and so there's like the legal pieces of it but then there's also the things we sat down and hashed out like when are we doing chores who's doing the chores again because often those things aren't talked about particularly in heterosexual relationships it's assumed that there's this specific divide of how things work um but i think having explicit open conversations about your assumptions in a relationship and potentially documenting them and having a you know, something to refer back to of like, you know, these are the things we aspire to. Um, and so when there are concerns of someone, say, doing too many chores, they can say, hey, remember back in the beginning when we agreed to this?
1: That's fascinating. It's like it's that's not what you find on a marriage vows or a marriage, right. marriage certificate or whatever. But I uh, know I think that's a fascinating way of setting up a relationship.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, and it does bring that business transaction aspect into it. Right, right, right. But it is kind of that, especially if you're merging like finances and households and things like that. I think these things really need to be talked about.
1: What about kids, though? I mean, how do they fit into non-monogamous relationships?
0: It depends, again, on the type of non-monogamous relationship. Um, So some people, if they are like publicly monogamous, um, often their kids don't know that they're non-monogamous. And so that is just not part of their life. Um, For people who are in openly non-monogamous relationships, um, children, there has been research on this, and children often see it as no different than like having step-parents. Like, other kids have blended families in this way, I have three dads, or whatever it is. Um, And so the kids tend to adapt pretty reasonably to these kinds of situations. Um, Of course, if you're parenting, say as a triad or a quad, say, two children. Um, I think that's something that really needs to be clearly ironed out um, of what happens if this relationship breaks up with those kids. Um, But of course, monogamous relationships with kids break up all the time also, uh, and that goes into lengthy court battles. Um, One issue that does come up in non-monogamy, again, if we're talking about custody battles, is that people often have children taken away from them if they're seen as kind of the inciting person for non-monogamy or if they were more non-monogamous or um, often if we're talking about women. So if they're too slutty, you know, and they're seen as inappropriate as mothers, like their children are more likely to be taken away. Um, But I think custody challenges happen in any type of relationship. Um does that answer your question? Is that oh, what yeah, you're yeah. getting at? I mean,
1: uh, You know, it's fascinating because obviously I'm coming at it from my biases of the you know, in a in a stable monogamous relationship, I'm like, this is a tough question. But really <laughs> like, yeah, I mean co parenting happens all the time, you know, and, and uh you know, blended families and things happen all the time. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know, it's the it's it's not not an exception anymore. It's the norm. And so um obviously Yeah, finding finding a, a role for kids and a place for kids in a non-monogamous relationship is certainly a, you know, not a not unexpected, but um, or I should I should I shouldn't be biased against it. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it should be this is um the way most most children are or a lot of children are raised these days in, in in different families. Even though you know, ninety percent of the children's books I read, there's a mom and a dad. Right? <laughs> right. That's it, right? Yeah. I mean, so
0: yeah. Uh, And I'm a huge advocate for kids having more caring adults in their life, right? The more adults they feel are supporting them and whether it's monogamous or non-monogamous, like having, you know, a good friend who comes over for Sunday dinners every night or Uncle Bob who's always around. um, I just think more supportive, caring adults in a kid's life has to be a good thing.
1: (laughs) All right. uh, Final topic I want to talk about jealousy mm-hmm. and it's flip side guilt. And I mean, if if relationships are, are open, um, you know, you feel like there shouldn't be any of that. It's all on the level and all everyone's doing their thing. But I mean, they are pretty strong emotions, jealousy and guilt, and they wreak havoc on a lot of relationships. You know, I mean, I just wonder, is my person fulfilled? Are they having enough sex? Are they not having enough sex? Um, are they who are they having sex with? It just seems like, you know, these questions would rage through you and just cause, uh, like a recipe for disaster, acknowledging again that, you know, obviously jealousy exists within monogamous relationships as well. But I, I you know, I, I, I think, yeah, it, it's. it's I, I think that if, if you were to embrace non-monogamy, it would still drive you crazy.
0: <laughs> yes. And that is a common assumption. Most people who are monogamous, when asked about non-monogamy, one of the most common responses for why they would not be able to do it is they're like, I'm too jealous. And I think that it's sort of a misunderstanding that people who are non-monogamous don't get jealous because that's not the case. And you're you're saying your assumption is there's like rampant jealousy actually. Well, yeah, I guess depending
1: <laughs> on the couple and depending on the or the or the uh, the arrangement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yes, uh, and I think it really all boils down to being able to feel comfortable with your feelings, and so. Uh, there's exercises, for example, in the book, The Ethical Slut, to talk about, there's a whole chapter, in fact, that I get my students to read uh, on jealousy. And so thinking about how are you going to handle jealousy when it comes up? And they talk about how jealousy is often a mask for other kinds of feelings. Um, And so maybe it is, um, or, or other kinds of, Specific things, so maybe it is insecurity, right? So some of the examples you gave is like worrying about, like, is my partner satisfied? Do they still like me, <laughs> etc. Um, and if that's where the jealousy is coming from, you can ask for reassurance, right? You can reach out to the partner and be like, "Hey, I'm feeling a little, you know, whatever it is. Um, I would love some reassurance around that." Or if it's um, in some cases, it can be a sign of anger and just being like, okay, I'm feeling really jealous, but actually I'm realizing it's because I'm mad at my partner because they're spending too much time with this other person. Um, and so then, again, just kind of the, the encouragement within CNM is to like take those feelings of jealousy or whatever they are um, and dig down on what is actually causing this feeling um, and how can I deal with it and also how can I get support for my partner or partner's around this. And so one of the recommended exercises from The Ethical Slut is for you to make a list of ways that you can be reassured by that specific partner. And then a, a partner can do that. And then you exchange these lists. Um, and so I've done this. And it can be so handy when a, a partner is feeling insecure. I can, like, pull up the list and be like, you know, if one of the items is remind me of an awesome time we had together, I can just go into, like, oh, remember that time? And it was so awesome. And we did this. And, like, then we kind of, like, rebond over this thing. Um And again, I think this is something that all relationships would benefit from, like having a a reassurance list. And then you can check in every couple of years and be like, does this reassurance list still valid? Are there other things that would be helpful for reassurance in these moments? Um, And so both, but also being responsible for your own feelings. Um, And I think that's a challenge as well in terms of um, it's very easy for me to be (laughs) non-monogamous, you know, but it's when you're doing the behavior um, it seems fine because, you know, you love your other partner or partners and you know that you're stable with them, etc. But they might not know that. And then when it reverses again, it can like they probably also feel that, of course, it's stable, etc. Whereas I'm sitting over here being like, oh, no, is it stable? Um, so there's uh, that part of it as well. Um and one thing I also wanted to add is the the flip side of jealousy, actually, is something called compersion, which is a word that was made up by consensually non-monogamous people. And it truly is like a feeling, uh, the opposite of jealousy. It's like joy for a partner, for an experience that they're having with someone else. Um, so, for example, if someone, I knew somebody really wanted to have like a threesome with these two people and it happened for them, I would be like thrilled about that because I knew it was something they were excited about. Um and so, yeah, that's another flip side of um, jealousy. And it's a benefit of CNM that I don't think really exists in monogamy land.
1: See, I always thought like guilt was like the flip side. It's like, <laughs> right, you know, right. I'm having I'm having too much sex right, right, with right. too many people and my partner is sitting at home alone kind of thing, right? You know, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I can see that too, the worry. And that comes up as well. Um, but again, I think a big foundation of non-monogamous relationships is people owning their own feelings and also advocating for their needs right so not expecting all your partners to know what you need at any given moment which again I think is a thing that's sort of built into monogamous relationships sort of like the well I've been ignoring him all day he should just know (laughs) right instead of being like I'm feeling really neglected right now. I'd really like if we could cuddle on the couch. Um, and so, being able to advocate for your own needs, and then also set boundaries, and not feel like you have to meet every single one of your partner's needs.
1: I think back to my relationships in my late teens and twenties, and and you know, it was always so heightened, and like every every mm-hmm. relationship was so you, know, you fell in love and you fell out of love, and <laughs> and, and um, you know, the stakes were so high. But <laughs> you know, then we mellowed into our thirties and forties, and kind of knew who we were and and knew better who we were and um, you know could have more long-term relationships and things like that that but but is there an age where monogamy uh, is there an age where non-monogamy or, or CNM works better um, which is a, mm-hmm. maybe an awkward question but.
0: no, it's not an awkward question at all and I think the answer is that non-monogamy looks different depending on your age. So for example, when we're younger uh, or on average when people are younger, there's more casual sex, right? So you have more like booty call relationships or casual hookups. like, And so people are doing non-monogamy, but not calling it that. They're, it's just like casual friends or casual relationships. And so that's kind of what it looks like when we're younger. Um, and the research does show that people who are in more like committed styles of consensually non-monogamous relationships, that does tend to happen 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. And so... Often it's when people are feeling more comfortable with themselves, more established in their relationships or more established with their relationship with themselves, that they feel more comfortable to be able to explore different things. And if you look at swinger communities, very often it's people who have like teenagers, right? So they've done the parenting thing, um, they've raised their kids, their kids are busy with their own lives on the weekends, and then parents can start to dabble in sexual experimentation that maybe they've missed out on the last 13 years.
1: Yeah, still it's it's still a, a a mystery in terms of I still think, you know, as much as we look at those eagles in the nest mm-hmm. and you know, they may not be they may be socially uh monogamous but not sexually monogamous like they're not still uh subject to the same sort of emotional mm-hmm. uh complexity that a human has. I mean, maybe I'm misreading, it. maybe they mm-hmm. have a huge emotional complex life that we don't know about and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. but you know, you look at around the animal world that, and you say, oh, yeah, you know, everyone's out having non-monogamous sex, but they're not feeling the effects of it at the end.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's true of all human experiences though as well. So for example, um you know people will die and for animals death happens as well. They don't grieve it in quite the way that humans do. They probably don't have the depth of emotion, um but we still like love people <laughs> that may die someday or love pets that may die someday. And so I think the if if the goal is to avoid any negative emotions ever, then I think we're really limiting Our life experience, so absolutely, it can be much more emotionally charged for humans than for eagles. Um, But I also think the flip side of that again is the benefits, right? So the benefits of you know being really deeply connected with people, um, of being able to be open and vulnerable, to be able to share yourself, to be able to have your needs met in diverse ways. Um, There's also all the benefit side as well, although there there can be a lot of drama and trauma in some cases.
1: Is this the future of relationships? Pitch me on why this is the future of relationships. <laughs>
0: uh, I saw a meme a little while ago uh, that was like, monogamy in this economy? <laughs> and so in one sense, like when we have rising raise, rising costs of living, it makes sense to have households where multiple people can contribute towards the bills. Um, I'm being quite flippant about that, but it, it's...
1: You know, actually, the other thing I thought is like, you know, you know the idea of the universal basic income has been floated. You know, I think that would be great for non-monogamy in terms of like I think, as I, as I allude to, like so many people stay in relationships because mm. there's no safety net, right? Mm-hmm. When they when they come out of it or whatever. But if you yeah. did have a universal basic income, actually, it would I think it would redraw um, relationships in, 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 or in some relationships in some ways to to people be more drawn to CNM.
0: Yeah, it would give people the freedom to leave relationships they didn't want to be in, or like you said, redefine their relationships. So, yeah, I think financial components are a contributor to whether we're monogamous or non-monogamous or how we structure our relationships. But I often think it's funny, like we're in late capitalism and things are so expensive and workers are not making enough money. And so I love the idea that sort of monogamy emerged from the creation of capitalism. And then because capitalism has created this huge wealth divide, maybe that's why (laughs) monogamy has to fall uh, because we can't afford to be in, you know, partnered, like, two-person relationships and also, like, live in a home. Um, so that just amuses me a little bit. Uh, but in terms of monogamy being the way of the future, I really think that it is not for everyone, um, as I said, I think in episode 40, when I first talking started talking about this, you know, I had inklings of my predilection towards non-monogamy in high school, but I, I never really thought of it that way. Um, whereas I have lots of friends from high school who, you know, have been monogamy minded their whole lives, like it's never wavered for them. Um, and again, of course, there's lots of people in between. And so I definitely don't think it's the way of the future. Um, I do think though that we will see more, and we are seeing more consensual non-monogamy as we have more freedom to express ourselves in different ways and like as uh, rigid social mores relax. Um you'll see people who maybe tended towards non-monogamy or wanted to be more non-monogamous, but then I still think the vast majority of people will prefer to be in at least serially monogamous relationships. So like we're just one person at a time. Um, that seems to be the preference in the research.
1: Thanks, Liz for all the info. Those are some <laughs> tough questions. It's, mm-hmm. good to, uh, it's good to push against the pillars of an institution, I think, once <laughs> yes. in a while.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks for all your awesome questions, Matt. Thank you. So that concludes this series on monogamy and non monogamy. One thing I wanted to touch on briefly about this episode is the idea of rules in a CNM relationship. Matt used the word rules in his question, but rules are often about controlling another person's behavior, which is generally not a good idea. I think agreements or boundaries, which focus on you and the relationship you want to create, are better ways to frame the things you feel comfortable with in your CNM relationship. In this three-part series, my goal is to share knowledge about monogamy and non-monogamy, challenge some misconceptions, and to encourage people to reflect on their relationship choices and needs. An overarching life goal for me is to destigmatize consensual sex and relationship choices people make and encourage people to make conscious choices about their sex and relationships instead of operating on assumptions about the way things should be. No matter what your relationship style, I hope you can take something from this series of episodes. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to do we at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at do dot com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tennecliffe. I am Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things, and you can email me at do at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.